Hello, everyone. Today, we are very lucky to have Melanie Gaston with us. Uh, Melanie is a partner at Osler, and I'm just going to have her uh, introduce herself here. Hi, Melanie. Hi there. So again, my name is Melanie Gaston. I'm a, a litigation partner at Osler in Calgary. Osler, for the uninitiated, um, is a big uh, national firm, Bay Street firm. Um, I work out of the Calgary office. Um, and I practice in, like I say, litigation, which is really more of a disputes practice now, as you sort of factor in arbitration and mediation, which attends most, most litigation practices these days. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, with COVID and everything like that, how has your litigation practice changed uh, from pre-COVID to, to now? I don't, I don't know that it's changed a ton, actually. Um, initially, there was a bit of concern because the courts were all closed and litigation matters weren't moving, hard to bring applications and those kinds of things. But the nature of big firm litigation is such that we're not typically in court every day and moving yeah, moving matters along um, in that way. So it didn't really affect us um, from that perspective. Um, certainly it interfered with um, a bunch of like client connectivity, sort of business development pieces that we would ordinarily do through the spring. Um, but in sort of day-to-day -day practice, I think that from a most big firm litigation didn't see a ton of change to their ordinary course of business other than we're all working from home. So working from home um, and you're talking about, about online. So what's an online hearing in court? Like, what does that look like? Cause typically, I mean, yeah, you go in person, you're arguing from the judge. What's it like online and how have the courts adapted to that? Cause I mean, it's kind of a whole new thing. Yeah, so initially there were um, a number of insolvency proceedings and things like that in commercial court here in Calgary that happened from the judge's home. <laughs> so the judge would log in through a court website um, and then you'd have like, you know, dozens of other people online. You don't, you didn't see them in the big, big hearings often. Everybody's, you know, picture and microphone is off. Um, but the weird thing is that, it, well, anyways, and so that was initially a now um often you can do chambers applications etc again the judges are often in their home um, that's better than the ones that happen in court where the judge is actually sitting in the courtroom at least here in calgary the judge is so far away from the camera that it's you can't like it's they're just a blob and uh, it's really hard to get any kind of sense of are they with you are they hearing what you're you know are they picking up what you're laying down or not or should you move on or should you hammer home a different point more um, so that's been a challenge. And also it's like speaking into a void, right? When you're making an application, ordinarily you can have a little bit more of a discussion with the judge and you still do, but it's a bit like it is on any, anybody who's ever been on a Zoom call, right? People are interrupting each other all the time unintentionally. There's a bunch of apologies. People are on mute. You know, you're on mute. Is like, you know, those kinds of things are happening. And those happen exactly the same way in an application, which makes it really different than it is when you're actually in court and, you know, in person and can pay attention to sort of body language and things like that. How often do people have their mics um, unmuted when they should be muted and you hear interesting things? And yeah. what's the policy on eating food during a hearing from home? <laughs> Probably eating food, not a good idea, generally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Yeah, but uh, no, it, it quite regularly happens where people, the toggle of 
you know, mute, unmute, mute, unmute, they get lost in the toggle somewhere and <laughs> land on the wrong side of it. But uh, I mean, it's just, like I say, it's no different really than any other sort of Zoom meeting oh, for um, sure. you might um, have, which again, from an application perspective is just a very different sort of tone uh, than you're used to. And it's hard to focus. I mean, for longer hearings, it's, it's, I find it harder to focus on a screen than when you're there and in person, right? Most definitely. Yeah. That I personally, for me, uh, trying to focus in school on screens is, yeah, that's not good. I had a hard enough time focusing during normal classes. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's, it's definitely been a adjustment and I'm, I'm sure court's been the same way, the, the body language, all of that. <clears throat> um, so in the energy sector, what is it like when a company comes to you and says, wanting to approve a pipeline what what kind of steps do they need to to do to to have that done oh so pipeline approvals are more of a regulatory process okay it's not really my my space um you know as you probably know our firm acted for trans mountain and um that's sort of a quasi-regulatory practice that involves a lot of um federal court appeals. Okay. Um, and so so th there are people in my office that are clearly quite skilled at that, uh, <laughs> um, given their success over the past few years with Trans Mountain. But, um, but uh, yeah, that, that, that's a whole regulatory process. And then when the regulatory process is challenged, it turns into sort of a quasi litigation because you're in front of a court rather than a regulatory body, um, oh, okay. appealing the decisions of regulatory bodies and the like. So that's really what that, that whole thing was all about um were right. various appeals of regulatory decisions um up into the courts well we're on the topic well you, you brought up uh oil and gas pipeline some i was wondering i mean yeah with covid change with with covid with oil prices down um all this kind of change in the marketplace now i was wondering specifically energy litigation and, and i mean in the terms of litigation especially where do you see the future of uh the, the future of energy and law going in canada well i mean there certainly has been a big shift towards um renewables so i think a lot of the folks that currently practice in the traditional oil and gas sectors are um at least at our firm and you see it at other firms as well are now shifting and focusing um a significant amount of their resources on on the renewable sector there's a lot of similarities right there's distribution issues there's storage issues there's a regulatory process you have to go through um, to approve projects um, there's the generation issue like all of those things aren't aren't very dissimilar to uh, the oil and gas stuff um, environmental issues that still need to be dealt with etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know the product may have changed um, at least in its inception but ultimately the rest of that whole chain um, continues to be very similar and so I think that there's I mean it's pretty clear that we're going to need oil and gas for the next 20 years at least um, you know while we might otherwise hope to transition to cleaner energy etc but um, there certainly is some adaptation going on within the legal field. It's not like there's a whole new need for new kinds of lawyers. I think it's yeah. people just suiting up a bit differently uh, yeah. for, for the renewables space. So I guess, uh, I mean, just kind of a general question. Like, so, so what kind of normal disputes would you work on? Like if there were, if, if there was one, like what, 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 what are kind of examples of a, certain disputes that you would litigate uh, in, in, in just the context of your practice? Like what, what's, what's common in a commercial litigation case? Like what's a common dispute? 
uh, breach of contract. Those are the bread and butter of most commercial litigations. Um, and then whatever tangential tort claims you can pull in, negligence is the typical one. If it's not a contractual breach, then it's a breach of some tort uh, obligation. Um, so that's the predominant, um, that's predominantly what we, uh, what we work with. But, you know, so it can be a fight over some clauses in um, construction. I do a fair amount of construction work. Um, so, you know, construction, there's always delay <laughs> because if anyone's ever had a contractor in their home doing work, uh, it's hard to predict what the schedule is going to be. And um, there's, when you're dealing with very large projects, there's lots of um, money tied up in, a, in, in, in delays. Um, so those are predominantly contractual. But then there's also like incident-based things. Uh, pipeline um, has a uh, unexpected release somewhere um, that, that results in almost invariably in some kind of a dispute. And then, um, you know, I do some insolvency work. So liens and things like that, people not getting paid, that goes back to a contractual slash statutory kind of claim. Um, you know, those are, uh, and, and then exploding things, things that uh, go sideways at uh, plants and the like. You learn a lot about engineering, um, yeah. uh, doing litigation in the energy, in the energy space, yeah. So I was wondering, like, let's use a contract example mm -hmm. um, as, as, as the main one. Um, what does the life cycle of a contract case? So like, yeah, you have a dispute, it comes into your mm -hmm. office. How long does it take? Who's involved? How many people involved? I mean, what's what's a typical lifestyle of a case going through your uh, going through your yeah so so the big litigations like so we've got a we've got i've got one going to trial it'll be three months trial starting in end of march beginning of april of this coming year um it's a contract case it has to do with various um, accountings of various interests in large uh, oil sands projects um i think that one the claim was filed in i'm going to say 2010 so about 10 years pretty standard for a big a big litigation and then next year I've got another one going a bit shorter timeline on that one so it'll be a 2021 trial at least as currently scheduled we'll see if we get there um that's uh that one was filed in 2016 um so that's five years so it's like quicker I suppose and again we'll see if we actually get there but um but uh yeah there it's years for sure so claims and defenses are filed documents are intense in big cases because you've got lots of people and all of those emails that they send to one another and all of those darn spreadsheets. I have to learn how to try and read Excel, which I'm still not very good at. Um, yeah. So all of that stuff is all potentially disclosable under our, our rules in Canada under in all the common law jurisdictions. So that takes a lot of time and a lot of technology um, to sift through all that stuff. And then uh, you go into questioning in Alberta. Um, unlike most other jurisdictions in Alberta, we've got very broad questioning rights. So you can question scads of folks about, and for as long as you want. So we can spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks in, in discovery, um, which you do on big cases. Um, and then basically learn very little and end up at the same spot you started with, with the same documents you knew you were gonna have, but anyhow. You know more about stuff, I guess, and then uh, and then you yes, more money. That's right. Well, it is. It's the most expensive part for sure. Yeah, Document yeah. discovery and questioning is by far the most expensive part of litigation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you typically pull in the experts and you work with some experts to tell us in their independent way um, what they think um, to help the courts, and then you prep for trial. But that 
process takes a, and there's often some interlocutory applications along the way. People are fussed about what you did or didn't say at questioning and undertaking responses and production matters and those kinds of things. Um, all of which have a tendency to stall uh, the general process of litigation. So that's why they do you, well. How often will you actually get to trial? I mean, rarely. Rarely. So at what point does it stop? Like you're halfway through questioning and people are like, all right, I'm over this. Um, like at what point does it normally stop? Well, it depends. It depends on the nature of the case and how bullish people are. Um, you know, I, I, and frankly, how well the lawyers can reasonably work with each other. Um, that can really either promote or detract from a resolution. But typically, I think that you find resolution either quite early on, claim defense, people feel like have a little bit of a chit chat and throw some money at something and it goes away. Um, and then the next point I would say is after your first round of questioning, where people sometimes make strategic offers um, based on how well they think questioning went or didn't go. And then uh, that, that can help resolve at that uh, juncture and then usually not then again until just before trial so the courthouse steps kind of uh, settlements happen quite regularly actually which again the lawyers make out okay because they've spent all that time prepping for trial they lose out on the actual costs of trial and the client saves the cost of actual trial but the bulk of the costs have already been incurred at that point right given the adversarial nature uh, of commercial litigation what is it like just being stuck in the middle uh, uh between either your client and, and, and the opposing party and and obviously they're they're not happy with each other that's why they're at this state yeah well that's why it's always good if the other when the other side has a lawyer which is you know 99.9 percent .9 of the cases that we work on um the other party also has counsel and so counsel plays a critical role in managing the emotions of their client um and relaying sort of you know their position back and forth in a hopefully um a more reasonable way um so that you don't get as inflammatory as you can get in certainly in other kinds of litigation and in litigation where there isn't counsel involved i mean if counsel's doing their job they're advocating for their client, but they're also, you know, part of that is helping to make things move forward um, in a reasonable way and having a good relationship. Still advocating, obviously, but having a good relationship with um, opposing counsel is, is I think, really critical um, to try and resolve these matters. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I have to bring it up with the, the Trump litigations, and I, I've heard a lot of their, their cases have been thrown out. W what is it like dealing with, say, a, a difficult client? And you don't have to give examples or anything like that, but I could imagine working for the president as his lawyer and being told, hey, you have to go to court and argue fraud here might be kind of a, a difficult experience. <laughs> yeah, um, but, you know hopefully the clients that you have trust you and you've established a relationship of trust with them. So they actually listen to your advice. And if you have a client that doesn't listen to your advice, then you need to have, you need to reconsider whether they're the right client for you and whether you can do your job as counsel and fulfill your obligations, um, your ethical obligations. If you've got a client who doesn't take your advice, it's clear to me that you're not the best match maybe. And maybe it's the opportunity for you to say to your client, listen, it seems to me that, you know, we're just not well matched because you don't seem to want to take my advice. And that's totally your prerogative, but it's hard for me to work for you and not feel like you trust me 
Um, so maybe I can refer you to someone else who you may have a better connection with. Um, that's always something that lawyers need to sort of keep in mind when they have, I think, when they have difficult clients, but that, you know, you can bring difficult clients around too. And hopefully that's really what happens first. That's sort of a last resort to fire your client. Um, but I do think that that is something that has to happen. And, you know, when you do start to get into those relationships with your client that are difficult, um, I think that's a good time to pull out your law society guidebook and see, okay, what exactly is my obligation here? And what exactly do I need to be doing? And am, are they asking me to do something that actually falls into a troubling gray zone or clearly offside what my obligations are um, as a lawyer and an officer of the court? So along those lines, so kind of tying that um, to, to like the questioning and the life cycle of the case. So I was wondering, let's say you as, a, as the expert on the case, or like, hey, we need to question Tanner about um, something. Um, do, does the client have to give you guidance to do that? Do they have to A-okay every single person you want to question? And then also in actual court proceedings, like let's say you want to cross-examine a certain witness or whatnot, do they have to approve that as well? So do they generally have to approve um, actions you take or certain ones you have to run by every single client or kind of how does that work? Yeah, so generally um, on sort of these bigger litigations, you, you send reporting letters to your client regularly. So they're up to speed sort of with what you're doing and where you're going. And so in terms of questioning, you'd send a, you know, an email or a letter that says, you know, we're heading into questioning. Here is the following people that we think we need to question. And this is why we think we need to question them. These are the areas that we think that they'll help us better understand, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let us know if you agree or not. And most most clients will agree with you. They may even have some ideas about people that they think you should add to your list or um, an idea about, you know, because they're your client, your instructing client isn't always close to the facts, but your client writ large is closer to the facts than you are. And so, you know, typically that's all done through with a reporting in mind. So they're up to speed about what you're thinking and what you've decided and they're aligned with you and your strategy. Um, and that's just communication, communicating with your client. And that's expensive too, actually, because it, you know, writing some of those letters takes hours um, to actually put together, as you can imagine, having written all of those law school uh, memos and stuff, um, even just a quick letter to a client, which you think is going to take, you know, an hour suddenly takes four. Um, but I think it's super important that they're up there. They're aligned with you and they understand your strategy, both because I think they can inform and advise you, um, and also because when and if things go sideways, they've been with you all the, all the way along. And so when that happens, it's not as much of a surprise to you because, or them, because hopefully you've given them a heads up, here's the risk, right? So it makes for just a better, as with everything, good communication makes for a better relationship. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that makes sense. Communication, always important. Uh-huh. Relationship um, advisor slash litigator. <laughs> my girlfriend would be happy to know I, i'm getting these uh these talks now <laughs> side, side side hustle for you melanie there, there yeah. you go <laughs> you've learned a lot about relationship management so i mean 
exactly. After your law career. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I, I noticed here you, you teach an oral advocacy course uh, mm -hmm. for the Canadian Centre uh, for Professional Legal Education. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for kind of our law students listening, because obviously that's, that is a most of our listeners, what is like the number one piece of advice you could give uh, a young lawyer looking to go out into litigation? The number one piece, you need to know what you're talking about. Like, don't stand up and try and wing it, um, which people think that you can do. But I will tell you that even, you know, with 25 or 30 years of practice under their belts, good lawyers, don't, you don't wing it. You need to know, you need to know what you're talking about, first of all. And then, you know, the constant critique is for every um, student who stands up to do their first, you know, um, master's chambers uh, submission or their first submission at court they always speak too fast and they always um, fail to organize their argument in a reasonable way so that it's understandable and those are invariably um, they're trying to cram too much into that small window of time forgetting that you need the person who's listening often some crotchety old judge um who needs to hear what you're saying and understand and process what you're saying. So if you're speaking a mile a minute and throwing a million things at them, you're, you're going to go, they'll just stop listening. It's just human nature. Right. Um, and so keeping it simple, taking it slow and making sure you know what, what it is you're talking about. I think those are. So what are kind of the benefits for, I guess, again, the kind of law students, um, listening uh what are kind of the benefits of going like what, what are kind of some of the best parts about litigation and i mean what skills or attributes somebody might have that might make them well suited uh to, to pursue litigation to go into litigation um i think you need to be uh analytical so you need to like finding a path through a problem and so that's often what you learn at law school so usually um the skills that took you to law school are the skills that you continue to develop um, in litigation. So there's some creativity involved, of course, but it's really just finding the path through to, uh, to resolve a problem. Um, you know, taking this set of facts and this contract or whatever and saying, okay, so this is what happened. Okay. Apply. And then, okay, wh where are the hiccups? Where are the, the analytical missteps that, don't lead you there, but lead you there, you know? Um, I think that's, that's what I really like about my job um, and writing. You have to like to write. Um, you have to uh, continue to develop your writing and not expect that, you know, once you've done it for a few years, you're good to go because I think writing and um, presentation skills are things that can always be improved no matter how much you've done it and how often you do it. There's always little nuggets you can take away from um, education about that or even just feedback from those kinds of things. But, now, so. how much is like, again, we talked about oral advocacy earlier, like uh, speaking, like I was always wondering, like you watch movies of courtrooms and you have these great public speakers doing all like, yeah, just, just these great public speakers. In actual litigation in real terms and like commercial litigation, is, is public speaking a big thing? Like is 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 that kind of a big is, is that kind of a big factor? Cause yeah, like yeah. I think any lawyer has to do some public speaking, even the comma moving solicitor types. 
um, have to do presentations for their clients and um, they tend to just not have as formal of an audience as we do in um, commercial litigation. I think like a lot of people will tell you that the reason that they didn't go into litigation is because they didn't want to, they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to stand up and speak in court. It gave them the willies and <laughs> didn't want to get over the whole butterflies in the stomach and thought, Oh my God, I can't do an entire career like that. Um, the stuff you see on TV where people sort of skid on their soapbox and pontificate about certain things that happens very rarely in my experience um, in commercial lit, the judge will give you time to talk about what it is you want to talk about. But most of our judges, like they're there to help figure out what the right re legal results should be. And they'll ask you questions. And so it's not really about a presentation as much as it is about a conversation. And that's more, what I, I think litigators do is they have conversations with judges and opposing counsel um, to try and advocate for their client and convince whoever that is that their path through the problem is the right path. And so I don't, presentation skills are always important. That comes with this, you know, slowing down your pace, organizing your thoughts so they're easy to follow, those sort of things. Um, but that's not really dissimilar from conversations that you have in your ordinary life. They're just a, just a titch more um, thought out in advance <laughs> than the ones that you might have with your friends over a beer, right? <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's a real shame that people shy away from it because, because of their fear of public speaking. The reality is most commercial cases are boring, so nobody's there to listen to it except for the judge and you and opposing counsel, maybe your clients. There's not, it's not like there's a gallery full of people. Nobody wants to sit through that, right? <laughs> it's not as interesting as criminal law or, you know, some of the dramatic sort of family law cases or whatever, which are way more interesting, have plot lines more like television, right? Fighting over the terms of a accounting provision in a contract. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't make for great prime time. So, or does it make for a huge audience in the courtroom? So you, I don't know. That sounds like exciting stuff to me. <laughs> just fascinating. <laughs> um, but, but so really like, you know, there's maybe 10 people in the courtroom at the most, including the judge, the reporter, you, you know, the two lawyers on each side and a couple of clients. So it's not like you're speaking to a auditorium filled with people. Um, and usually, at least for me, my um, hesitation or concern about litigation you know, when I came out of law school and started my career, that by the time I was in about my third year or fourth year, it had totally vanished because most, I realized most of what my concern was with was the process, right? Where do I stand? Where do I look? How do I dress this person, that person? Which, when is it my turn to speak? What if I say something wrong? All of that stuff. And, and as you sort of experience it or even just watch other people go and sit in a court for a bit and you realize there's no magic here. Like, <laughs> you know, that you sort of, that erodes and then you're able to better focus on not so much the process, but actually what it is that you're there to do um, and the position that you want to advocate for. And then it's less of a presentation issue. What if you make a mistake in the process? And I mean, like a minor mistake. I mean, how serious are you? Like if you dress the wrong person, or you talk at the wrong time. I mean, in reality, you think like, who cares? It doesn't quite matter, but you're maybe, we're maybe taught to be like, oh, you need to do this, especially if you say your first name, this is the worst thing ever. Like what's it, what's it kind of like in reality? 
you just apologize just like you do in any other aspect of your life. You apologize and fix it. The, you know, what, what, what all that stuff goes to is respect and credibility. Right. And so, you know, knowing where, where to stand and how to do it um, just increases your credibility with the court. Cause they'll say, Oh, well, they clearly know what they're doing in terms of, you know, how to advocate and suddenly you're potentially viewed as being more credible than the bumbling fool who doesn't seem to know <laughs> what to do and where to, where to be. Um, it just suggests inexperience. Right. And so, but, but when you say the wrong thing or you stand in the wrong place or you interrupt, God forbid, interrupt the judge, you just apologize like you would in the ordinary course of life and move on. Judges are people too. We hear. (laughs) Speaking of judges, uh, in TV and stuff, you always hear, you know, getting a good judge, uh, friendly judge, all that. How far in advance do you know your judges and, and how does that actually change your preparation? Um, you don't know your judge very far in advance, typically. It doesn't change your preparation. Okay. Um, it may, it may like sort of in the moment a little bit. You may choose examples that you know that that judge was familiar with in their own practice or something like that. Um, but uh, other than that, I, I, it doesn't change may change little things about how you present, but not significantly. Um, And, you know, fortunately, I I, I believe fortunately in Canada, the judiciary is appointed. Um, They are not elected. So, you know, we could can debate for hours, the pros and cons of appointed versus elected uh, judiciary, but um, you know, they take an oath to leave, like to be fair and reasonable and to move forward. And their job isn't contingent on, who, which lobbyists are the ones in power or, or you know, right. anything like that. And I think that that's a huge, hugely valuable. And the ideal is that you can, should be able to swap out judges and get the same results. Um, so with that in mind, presumably your presentation to the judge and the way that you argue a case shouldn't change. If you could swap out the judge, you sh- should be able to be equally successful or unsuccessful. Uh, with the same application you would have brought irrespective of who was sitting. So relationships with judges um, over the time, I mean, you've been practicing litigation for quite for a large portion of your career. Um, do you develop a lot of relationships with judges? Are you friends with judges? Can you do that? Like kind of, kind of, how does that relationship work and how does it mainly, how, how does it affect like your professional working relationship? If uh, the judge may be hearing your case. Yeah. Well, I mean, judges have an obligation to, um, recuse themselves from cases that they don't think that they can listen to fairly. Um, So often if a judge is appointed from your firm, for instance, the judge can't hear from that firm for a a prescribed period of time until presumably their relationships have, um, you know, separated a bit. Judges are typically more, it's one of the things that people that have been appointed will tell you one of the biggest effects um, on them personally is typically how isolated they suddenly feel because there is a a level of propriety that they need to maintain um, vis-a-vis relationships. Like I, you know, you you can't really take a judge out and I can't put my lunch with a judge on a Osler credit card, for instance, like that. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing really wrong with that, but I mean, it does, it makes judges uh, uncomfortable uh, understandably. People that are my friends before, during their role on the judiciary, there's nothing wrong. I mean, just that we just won't talk about cases. We just don't talk about what work I'm doing. And I shouldn't be talking about that anyway, because it's all 
um, privileged and confidential. So, um, but uh, of course I have friends in the judiciary and have, you know, friendships with them. And there's lots of lawyers in town. Of course they do. Of course you don't stop your friendship just because someone got appointed <laughs> or, or whatever, but, but you know, what you talk about um, typically isn't the cases you're working on. And there are still like, there are a couple of judges that I know won't, won't hear me. So if I randomly draw the courtroom on a chamber's application and master so-and-so or justice so-and-so is sitting, um, they'll, ha- they'll, they'll say, Oh, is this your case? Oh, okay. Well, I'd like you to move, be moved to another courtroom. That's all that typically happens on sort of those application pieces. And I know who those are, the judges that won't hear me. And many of them, I don't, from my perspective, I don't see that there should be any issue. Um, but they still feel a little bit uncomfortable because of the relationship they've had with me in the past. Um, a working relationship, people that I've worked with closely that, you know, choose to apply and get appointed. So that's their entirely their comfort level. Right. Um, and, but, you know, we're all lawyers and I hope that, that uh, you can recognize when you're able to set aside, you know, your bias Um and in fact, like, you know, I've appeared in front of some of my former professors from U of C who have been in the judiciary. And uh, I'd be I think I, got, I, get a, I get a harder run in front of them than I do uh, in front <laughs> of people that uh, don't. So, so it's not just because you know the judge doesn't yeah. necessarily make things easier. It can often make things more difficult. There's so. a couple of professors. If I, if I had a case in front of them, I'd be like, oh, put recuse myself from this yeah <laughs> yeah can i get another judge, can I get another judge <laughs> please please that's right. okay. this that's person right. knows too much about my prior that's right <laughs> and my personal read, life this guy's read yeah. too many of my poor memos <laughs> that's right uh, so I, I i was wondering too so like you have relation you, like you have a lot of experience the field relationship with judges um I guess, where do you see, and I guess this is a question a lot for people interested in law and for uh, law students as well. Like, where do you see the need for law students um, in, in the future? Where do you see growing areas of law um, just based on growing areas to practice, growing areas of law based on just your experience and experience talking to judges and just needs in the Canadian legal system? Yeah, so um, I ran into one of our, a friend of mine who's a judge um, yeah, not long ago. Halloween actually um and uh, well she's one of my neighbors but uh anyway um and she was saying uh how desperate they are in sort of the not the big cities but the more rural communities or smaller centers for judges like there's a desperate need for people um in specifically like you know people facing practices family law criminal law um small civil disputes that kind of practice how there's such a dearth of lawyers um, and it becomes an access to justice issue, you know, quite quickly. Um, but this, the smaller cities um, and towns just don't have people enough lawyers um, to support the needs of the community. Um, so anybody who's a people helping person, um, those are areas for sure especially if you're inclined to live in a smaller town or that's a, you know, kind of the community that you idealize, then I think there's always going to be, always will be um, lots of opportunity um, to practice in those spaces. I know the, the big firm practice um, will continue to chug along as it does, uh, you know, but 
technology and the uh, application of various technologies to sort of streamline that work are going to likely result in fewer, you know, fewer, fewer opportunities over time um, for as many lawyers um, in those spaces. But, you know, like the, the access to justice issues are going to continue to grow. And those areas typically are, you know, criminal law, family law, wills and estates kind of practice. And, you know, just real people having real challenges that become legal in their lives. Um, so I think that there's lots of opportunity there. And I think, and unfortunately, because the, and Jordan, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but because the big firms sort of come out, um, come, come out hot at the beginning of uh, your law school career, people tend to get really focused on those being the be all and the end all of uh of um, work, but you know, just as much money can be made, um, just as interesting a practice I think can develop, um, and you can um, really create a, a really great life and practice in in many of those other areas uh, where there's so much opportunity, and and you drive your own, you know, you drive drive your own schedule more than you would in sort of the big machine of big law. Um, so that's where I think there's going to be continue to be lots of opportunity in those areas. So big law versus so I mean for to to define big law for 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 the listeners, a a a, a firm like Osler that Melanie's at, it's like a big national firm with uh, hundreds thousands of lawyers all over all over North America maybe, or in Osler's in Osler's uh, in Osler's case just Canada versus like a mom and pop shop with like uh, three four lawyers. What would, what would the, and I mean, this kind of has like an obvious answer, but if you could maybe, if you have any examples, like what's kind of the difference um, in work you might do in business litigation versus a, versus a smaller firm and then a large firm like Osler? Um, so if you do business litigation at any of those scenarios, is that yeah, what you're Yeah, asking? I guess. Like a yeah. smaller firm. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, big firms, um, typically do sort of big cases, lots of zeros, they drag on for a long time. There's usually teams of people working on them. People rotate in and out of the team just by virtue of attrition at big firms. Um, and, uh, you know, as big companies, most of it's for big companies, as big companies try and tighten their external legal spend, they tend to do more in-house um, as much as they can. And so the stuff that they send out tends to be either um, very complex or very time sensitive. So as a result, the nature of the service that you provide in a big firm is gonna be, you know, the quick um, quick turnaround, i.e. working lots of evenings and weekends in a short period of time um, on an injunction or something like that. Um, or it's gonna be like just a lot of a grind over a, like, period of time so long hours you're at the beck and call of your client um you know it's just that that tends to be the kind of practice that you have at at in big law so so evenings weekends you know canceled my plans because suddenly i have this work to do kind of stuff um is just what happens in a big firm um mid-sized firms not too dissimilar but maybe not quite um maybe not quite the same volume um, on an individual file, for instance. Um, a little bit more 
that clients tend to be not sort of the big behemoth client. Um, so you probably have an opportunity to do things that aren't instructed by people who do exactly what you do, but just not in the same sort of time pressure. Um, and equally business critical because, but the business is just a smaller business, right? So the million dollar lawsuit to a small business in your community is just as critical to them as the, you know, billion dollar lawsuit for a big company. Um, so just as critical, um, but you tend not to have the same maybe volume of um, documents to go through and the same roster of witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as a result, uh, not quite so time intense. Um, maybe it would be, but, um, and maybe over a short period, but it's just a little bit different that way. Um, and then a smaller practice, you know, you know, your client really well, it's again, can be just as critical for them, but, but, um, but typically you have more of a choice of who your client is, um, what work you want to do and don't want to do and have a little bit more control over the, your lifestyle. So I think it's a, you know, somebody who sets up, Obviously, initially you set up your practice, you're going to potentially want to try and build it pretty quickly, but that's a choice that you're making about how much you're working in and um, the nature of the cases that you're inclined to, to do, to take on. Um, you don't really have that choice uh, at a big firm, especially in your you know, first, first 10 years, but even beyond that, like we're not going to say to the Suncors of the world, they bring a case to us, eh, sorry, we've got plans this weekend. You know, that's a little bit of a problem, but uh, you know, that's something that's absolutely acceptable in, in a small, in a smaller practice, especially if you don't have that client as somebody who, you know, is somebody that you feel is, is a client, you know, sort of going forward and things like that. So I do think that um, smaller practice may allow you to make more active choices about what your lifestyle will be. Working in a bigger practice, have you found it difficult, more difficult to, to strike that work-life balance like personally, or ha has it just been no problem for you? Because I always hear like going into uh, OCIs and all these things that firms are always talking about work-life balance. And, and I know a lot of our listeners, it's something that they're really concerned about as well. So maybe some tips for work-life balance or, or anything like that. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody has a different idea of what work-life balance looks like. And so, um, and I think that, you know, that can develop with, you don't really know what it is until you've tried it um, right. in terms of working at a, at a big firm. Um, when you're at the bottom of the ladder, mm -hmm. you tend to not have a ton of choice about when you work and how much you work, if you want to stick around on that ladder, Right. Um, now that's not to say that if you're drowning and need a life jacket that you shouldn't be reaching out to people around you and hopefully those big firms um, that require you to work a ton have people that are willing to throw you the life preserver or the life jacket <laughs> and help you out a little bit right and I think there is an increasing recognition amongst every workplace that there has to be attention paid to the well-being of their individual employees but the pyramid scheme of the big firm only works if the people at the bottom are cranking out the hours, right? And you've got a lot to learn and it takes you way longer to do stuff when you're, you haven't done it before. 
Right. You just get more efficient as you get a little bit more practiced, right? That's just sort of the way it works. Um, you know, there's going to be times that you can't do stuff that you'd plan to do. There's going to be times where you're working on the weekend and really don't want to, or there's times that you're working into the wee hours of the night. Some people who are uber efficient maybe don't have those same concerns because they can crank the stuff out irrespective of distractions and how their day is going, but that is not me. Um, and I haven't met many of those folks. <laughs> um, so, you know, invariably you're sacrificing your personal time, what would normally be your personal time to do work. But, you know, the flip side is that you're reasonably independent um, in private practice. So if you want to sort of slack off for a day or a morning or whatever, you can do that, but you just have to make up the time later. And I think working from home has only exacerbated that tendency for some people. <laughs> you know, the afternoon nap has suddenly found its way into your daily schedule and things like that. But, uh, um, but you know, uh, laws demanding, no matter what kind of practice that you choose. Um, and there has to be some, I mean, you're, you're a professional. It's your career. Um, it's not just a job. And so... Right attendant on that is a whole host of choices that you need to make about, you know, what is my threshold for how willing I'm, I am to be entirely at the beck and call of other people um, and my client, or do I want to, you know, take back a little bit of that control and make different choices um, regarding how much control other people have really of my, of my time so and, and and you know at a big firm as you get more senior you tend to not do as many labor intense um, like i don't review documents for 40 hours in a week because that's not in my client's best interest for all sorts of reasons not the least of which is the economics of it um but you know, there's other people that are doing that because their rates are lower. They haven't had the experience yet. It's a good way for them to get the experience, et cetera, et cetera. But um, anyway, that, that that's uh, it's just that's just the way that things have worked. That's the way that the money is made for the tops of the pyramids. And so, um, like I say, as you get more senior, you don't you don't have that same level of disruption in your sort of planned life. Um, right. But there's still disruption as, as there is when you work in private practice for clients who need your help. Well, the law students out there will definitely appreciate knowing that. <laughs> yes. Cause I mean, law Most students definitely. just blindly might go to a certain place without knowing a lot about what it is. And then, I mean, it can affect them. So I do appreciate that. And also I think, I think we've taken up enough of your time here. So, we can wrap it up here, but Melanie, we, we, we really do appreciate you um, stopping by and myself, Tanner and everybody listening. We, we learned a lot and we, we really appreciate your time today. Yes. Thank you very much. Anytime.